Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg is strongly defending the company he co-founded. Facebook has apologized after three of its social media platforms, including I've lost count of the number of times Facebook has been browbeaten. The message from whistleblower Francis Haugen is that Facebook should declare moral bankruptcy. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and look at how news is reported. Here are the media stories we're examining this week. A whistleblower, a system crash, and the U.S. Congress is on its case. Facebook is under the microscope, and the meme makers are having a field day. Collaborative journalism strikes again in the form of the Pandora Papers, an expose on how the rich and powerful hide their wealth. And being a social media influencer in Egypt, especially if you're a woman, can be a dangerous business. Facebook and its CEO Mark Zuckerberg have never had a week quite like it. Last Sunday, 60 Minutes, an American news institution, broadcast an interview with a Facebook whistleblower, data scientist Francis Haugen. We've heard the allegations before, that the company puts profits before people, its corporate well-being before the greater good. Haugen put a face on that story, and she had the documents to back it up. The very next day, Facebook's system crashed. Ever had a problem updating your software? Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp were all blacked out for almost six hours, affecting more than three billion users worldwide. The day after that, Francis Haugen was back in front of the news cameras, telling lawmakers in Washington, the time has come to act against a company that has become a societal menace through algorithms that can fuel disinformation, conspiracy theories, and put people at risk. Facebook has grown accustomed to defending itself. This kind of scrutiny, however, is on another level. Our starting point this week is the moment Facebook and its other platforms went down. It's 8.40 a.m. in Silicon Valley, California. 11.40 a.m. in New York. Late afternoon in London, nightfall in New Delhi. Users of Facebook and other apps owned by the company, WhatsApp and Instagram, are seeing error messages instead of home pages. What was supposed to be a routine update of the routers that make up Facebook's backbone, the ones that coordinate traffic between its data centers, goes wrong. A global outage taking down Facebook around the world. It well and truly has broken the internet. All of those platforms crash, and for the next five hours, the planet's dependence on one big tech company is laid bare. So I became aware by trying to communicate with my uh, family group chats on WhatsApp, friends and family who are based in Iran. I thought that there was something going on with the internet in Iran. And when I realized it wasn't, I went on to uh, Twitter, which is when I realized that this was actually a global infrastructural issue happening with Facebook. The uh, significance of this particular outage is because it's not just three apps, it's one company, which underscores how huge this company is. Probably over a quarter, probably nearer a third of the population on the planet have a Facebook or WhatsApp and or Instagram account. So this. This is underscoring, throwing into stark relief the market dominance of this one company. Many people run their businesses 
off of Facebook and Instagram. They receive orders for shipments through Facebook and Instagram. They depend on advertising through Facebook and Instagram to keep their businesses going. I'm just a professor, so I wasn't affected personally in any way, but I was deeply aware of all of the people who are now deeply dependent on Facebook and Instagram for their livelihood. Facebook's CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, has been dealing with a succession of damaging news stories. His company is leaking like a sieve to some big-name news organizations. Tonight, an explosive report in the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal revealed Facebook was planning to launch an Instagram kids app, despite the company's own researchers concluding the platform already has an adverse effect on the mental health of teenage girls. The New York Times then reported that Facebook was planning to clutter its own newsfeed with positive stories about Facebook to counter the growing criticism out there. But critics are a dime a dozen. Ex-Facebook data scientists turned whistleblowers are not. There were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. This past week, Frances Haugen, the unnamed source behind the Wall Street Journal story, shed her anonymity. Facebook's own research says it is not just that Instagram is dangerous for teenagers, that it harms teenagers, it's that it is distinctly worse than other forms of social media. In her interview on CBS News' 60 Minutes, Haugen said the social media giant should declare moral bankruptcy for putting astronomical profits before people. Facebook has realized that if they change the algorithm to be safer, people will spend less time on the site, they'll click on less ads, they'll make less money. The algorithm this is something that people have known for a while. What is significant is this whistleblower came out with actual research and you know the, the documentation and words of Facebook themselves outlining these very harmful impacts from their software and from their algorithms. She was on one of the probably most impactful news shows in the United States, which is 60 Minutes. And so for the first time, many things that many internet researchers, digital rights activists have been saying for many years are reaching the ears of you know millions of ordinary Americans and global citizens. Every whistleblower um, is doing a public service. So Frances Haugen has gone public because she has a uh, very good reason to do so. It's the fact that she got on 60 Minutes is indicative of how serious mainstream news organizations are taking this. After all, they had to compete with these digital um, services. And now um, perhaps it's time to uh, settle a few accounts. Facebook refused an interview request from 60 Minutes, issuing a statement instead, diminishing Haugen's role in the organization, her credibility as a source. The company claimed that algorithmic changes Facebook has made improve people's experience by prioritizing posts that inspire interactions, which research shows is better for people's well-being. But Haugen wasn't done. On Tuesday, the day after the blackout, she testified before a Senate subcommittee on consumer protection. Congressional action is needed. They won't solve this crisis without your help. As one of the senators put it, she came armed with thousands of documents Haugen had copied before quitting her job. Looming over her testimony was the outage the day before, 
its impact, Facebook's dominance, and the question of what the U.S. government should do about it. American lawmakers have an ideological aversion to new forms of regulation, and breaking up monopolies is hard to do. I suspect Ms. Hagen will be remembered as one of the most important whistleblowers in American corporate history, right up with those who released devastating documents on how tobacco causes cancer. This might be in that league ultimately, because we can no longer accept the denials and dismissals of Facebook leaders. It's all too clear that they've been misleading us, and this is just as important. The significance really lies in the amounts and troves of documents that Francis was able to bring out. And we're seeing it today in the hearings in the United States. We're going to be seeing it in the European Parliament. The Digital Services Act is, you know, being formulated as we speak, and they're inviting Francis to bring her documentation to help inform these regulations going forward because the question of how to regulate a behemoth like Facebook has been one of the like questions boggling digital rights and government. It isn't just regulating Facebook, it's regulating big tech, the giant tech companies. It's the idea of relationship between um, our governments, uh, our rights and freedoms, and the opportunities that being able to connect online using uh, video platforms like the one we're using to record this interview, what they offer us as well. But that doesn't mean that just because something's technically possible, that is actually right, or that it's appropriate either by law or ethically. And those are really large debates and we need to start having them. An American company, Facebook is a much bigger player in other countries than it is at home. India, with its 340 million users, is Facebook's biggest market and among the most dependent. In Brazil, almost 150 million people are on WhatsApp. It doubles as a political platform there and helped bring President Bolsonaro into office. There's Myanmar, where for tens of millions, Facebook is the internet. It's where they live and conduct their business online. So the approach that U.S. lawmakers take, whether they decide to call in the regulators, will have even greater implications overseas than it will domestically. What we're talking about here is dependence. In a very short period of time, a significant portion of the world has been invited to be fully dependent on one company, one American company that can't seem to run itself well. That's dangerous. It's not just dangerous that it went down. It's not just dangerous that people are dependent on it. It's that combination. We should have resilience and diversity in our communication and media systems so that the whole world is not dependent on one or two companies to get through our day. And sadly, that's what we've created. Turning to another media story now that's reverberating through the world of the rich and powerful, the largest ever leak of offshore data. Flo Phillips has been on the case. Flo, who led this investigation? What did they find? Richard, the Pandora Papers are a collection of leaked files revealed by an organization that we've come to know rather well, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, based in Washington, D.C., it was responsible for releasing both the Panama and the Paradise Papers in 2016 and 2017, respectively. The ICIJ has been working on this investigation for nearly two years, throughout the pandemic. 
going through almost 12 million financial records. And they didn't do it alone. That's where the consortium bit comes in. They've been sharing their files with more than 600 journalists in 117 outlets across the globe. Some big names like The Guardian in the UK to smaller outlets like Twala in Algeria. The data contained information about offshore companies, the kind that can hold assets, properties, boats, stocks and shares, without the owners of those assets having to pay tax in their own countries, basically places where the rich can hide their holdings. With so many national leaders named in these documents, 35, plus the billionaires, the celebrities, it must be difficult to pick a standout story from all of this. Well, we could go with the King of Jordan, who's been using some of these offshore companies to buy no fewer than 15 properties across the US and the UK worth more than $100 million. His lawyers say that the King, quote, has not at any point misused public monies. And they added that he cares deeply for Jordan and its people, which is an interesting addition given that many Jordanians wouldn't have known much about the revelations. Jordan appeared to block the ICIJ website just hours before the Pandora Papers were released, and coverage of the story was notably absent from news outlets in that country. What tangible changes, what reforms are likely to come of all of this? Any? So the Panama and the Paradise Papers publications did lead to a variety of arrests and some financial reforms. Since these papers were published, leaders in countries including Mexico, India, Spain, Germany have all vowed to help strengthen international financial regulations. However, those are leaders who weren't named in the papers for hiding their own assets offshore. Okay, thanks, Flo. It's been more than 10 years now since the Arab Spring protests swept across Egypt, and President Sisi's government has been progressively tightening its grip on cyberspace. Several independent news sites and opposition websites have been censored or blocked, and citizens have been targeted through some sophisticated spyware. This past year has seen the emergence of another disturbing trend. Women, some of them university students, getting arrested over their social media posts, mostly on TikTok and Instagram. The charges tend to be vague, such as violating public morals and undermining family values, neither of which the state has actually defined. And those charges seem to be gender-specific. They have not been applied to male social media influencers. The women convicted have been hit with some heavy fines, even jail sentences, at what the government's critics are calling the intersection of the surveillance and patriarchal state. The listening posts Minakshi Ravi now on the young women who have come to be known as the TikTok girls. It was all so unexpected. It was a shock for a lot of us and it scared me. It's made me not want to post anything online. That was a voice note from an Egyptian woman. Out of more than 10 people that we contacted, asking to speak about what it's like to be an Egyptian woman active on social media today. She was the only one who agreed to speak with us, not on camera, but through these recorded voice messages. A lot of women in Egypt are scared to talk about these issues. Our society shims us into fear, shims us into silence. What happened was a lesson. What happened was the sentencing of two women, Hanin Hossam and Mawada Al-Adham. 
In June this year, they were sent to prison for 10 and 6 years respectively. The videos they'd posted on social media platforms like TikTok and Instagram had brought them to the attention of the authorities. So Hanin Hussam and Mawadda are two girls who are 20 and 22 years old. They're college students who were very popular on the platforms of TikTok and Instagram, where each had either one or three million followers. They were posting videos of themselves lip-syncing songs. And so they weren't doing anything out of the norm. Uh, Hanin Hussam was contracted by um, Likey, this social media company, um, and she was encouraged to establish um, her own agency and to recruit uh, other influencers. So she went on Instagram uh, and she sent out an invitation specifically to young women. And in this video, she says in order to apply you need to have a strong internet connection you need to you know have a good personality and if you're successful you might be able to make a decent monthly income and the first signs that something had gone um, awry were, were that was that there was thousands of comments from social media users that this was an invitation by Hanin Hossam to encourage sex work online. The comments on the videos alerted Egyptian authorities. Hossam and Al-Adham were arrested and convicted of, quote, violating Egyptian family values and human trafficking. Theirs are the most high-profile cases out of at least 10 instances of women being arrested for their online activity over the past year. Collectively, they are now known as Egypt's TikTok girls. Since 2018, two laws have been used to control the Egyptian online sphere. The media regulation law, which treats social media accounts and blogs with more than 5,000 followers as media accounts. And the law the women were tried under, the cybercrime law. One specific clause of that law, Article 25, also called the Morality Clause, prohibits the use of technology to, quote, infringe on any Egyptian family principles or values. That clause has been used in nearly every one of the cases against the women on TikTok. We're not against issuing a, a cybercrime law. However, nobody ever thought that this would be used against women specifically. And the Article 25 that criminalized violating family morals, we have seen an increasing use of this article, not just by the prosecution, but even when people report crimes on social media. Oh, this act, this dancing, this woman hurt the family morals but with no definition of what is the family morales. While for a very long time it was about journalists and activists and protesters, today it's about young women who actually have large followings. Because what is more threatening to the state than a young person who has millions of people that wake up in every morning and see what they posted? That is deeper reach than the state will ever have. And if they're today dancing and lip syncing, tomorrow they might be talking about there's potholes, there's open sewage, there's poverty. I don't think I have prospects for a job. Once the language moves into that category, then the state has no control over the dissemination of voices of dissent. It is no stretch to say that the Egyptian state sees young people with online followings in the millions as potential threats. Just a decade ago, 
online activism proved crucial in mobilizing masses of Egyptians to protest the rule of President Hosni Mubarak to eventually bring him down. And more recently, in September 2019, activists used social media again to organize demonstrations demanding the removal of current president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Even with that history, though, the campaign against Egyptian women active on social media seems particularly aggressive. We don't have any cases of using cybercrime law in its article of violating family morals used against any man. Men dance, men use inappropriate language, and they're not prosecuted for it. But also, I would add that it's not just the cybercrime law that is used against these women. The law on prostitution is only used against women in Egypt. So there is a wide context of using several laws against women. This is part of what we think about in terms of the gendered nature of authoritarianism, but really about state patriarchy. The only way for an authoritarian state, which Egypt is today, post-military coup of 2013, to continue to socially control everyone is to actually become the patriarch of society. Now the current president, President Sisi, saying, I'm going to lay on you a level of patriarchy and instill in the family a fear of the unknown, a fear of cyberspace, a fear of that your children will be taken into this space where you can no longer control it because you don't understand it. And that's very much in the nature of gendered patriarchy or gendered authoritarianism in a country like Egypt. And, and I think um, another important point to bring into this as well is class, is that these women, the TikTok women, they're not from um, the upper classes of Egyptian society. They weren't educated in foreign institutions or educated abroad. They come from a lower socioeconomic background and have exploded onto the scene, who have avenues for financial independence. And those sorts of values and the kinds of dances and songs that these TikTok women were performing were just not what is expected for women from their socioeconomic background. We contacted the Office of Egypt's public prosecutor about the cybercrime law and the slew of cases against young women. We received no response. However, in a statement posted on his Facebook account on the 2nd of May 2020, the public prosecutor justified the arrests of the women, saying forces of evil were abusing the new virtual electronic space to destroy our society, demolish its values and principles, and steal its innocence. For many Egyptians on social media, especially women, the cases have had a chilling effect. Hanin Hossan is a young girl. And for her to receive a 10-year sentence, it means that all of her youth is stolen away from her. The impact that is intended is that if you are a woman in Egypt, don't have a platform where you can influence. Don't. Especially if you're from a low socioeconomic background or from a middle class. These cases re represent part of a, like, a broader regime of information control, be it the censorship of websites online, be it the mass surveillance of civil society, the arrests en masse of, of civil society and human rights activists. The crackdown has gone beyond solely political expression and they're particularly targeting women 
in this case. And I think that these cases will only become more numerous and this sort of broader regime of information controls is, is not going anywhere anytime soon. And finally, live by the meme, die by the meme. It's been that kind of week for Facebook. Imagine having to use a blowtorch to get into your server rooms to fix a high-tech problem that's locked you out. That actually happened at Facebook, a workaround straight out of the Industrial Revolution. Then, while desperately trying to get your platforms back up and operating, in the back of your mind, you just know that memes are being manufactured at your expense. And they're making the rounds on your rival platforms like Twitter, which was always going to rub your nose in it. We'll leave you now with some of those memes, and we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. Yeah.